1: Hiya, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook. Today we're talking about Dream Zones, Anticipating Capitalism and Development in India by Jamie Cross. The book is published by Pluto Press, and Jamie Cross is a lecturer in Social Anthropology and Development at the University of Edinburgh. This book is a really beautifully written and engaging piece that takes us through many different facets of a special economic zone in South India. We learn about workers, about managers, politicians, anti-SEZ activists, and also about land and how all these different diverse groups of people and places are imbued with the future as people anticipate future development it really is a wonderful wonderful book and i can't recommend it enough i had a pleasure of speaking with jamie just a few minutes before okay so without any further ado it gives me great pleasure to welcome jamie cross to new books in south asian studies thanks a lot for coming on the show and thanks a lot for your wonderful book
0: thanks very much great to be
1: part of this Great. So before we talk about your book itself, I don't know if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background and how you got interested in this topic. Um,
0: well, I, let me just go back. I did a, a graduate course, a master's degree in social anthropology and social transformation at the University of Sussex in 2001. And during that course, I wrote a dissertation about trade unions and language and power in Nepal, and when I finished that, I spent a year working in South Asia, first in Kathmandu, doing a little bit of work for the International Labour Organization, editing reports and looking over some of the documentation they were producing. And then went from there for a few months over summer to Geneva and spent a bit of time with the International Labour Organization's Bureau for Workers' Activities and really got Interested in labour, labour movements, the politics of work in South Asia, and at around the same time, I'd been um, had the opportunity to go the, to the the World Social Forum in Hyderabad in Andhra Pradesh, what was then Andhra Pradesh, and came to know really for the first time of the new kinds of workspaces that were being created in the. Export processing zones, free trade zones, special economic zones that were being built across India at that point. And there were spaces very much like the the spaces that anthropologists who I'd read had been writing about in Malaysia, Iwa Ong, or in Mexico, people like Leslie ago. And I was really fascinated by what that meant in India and really excited by the possibility of doing some kind of Factory based ethnography, or uh, kind of following a tradition of factory based research in those new and emerging workspaces, and trying to figure out how some of that research could speak not just to anthropology but also to people who are interested social activists and labor organizations who are interested and also concerned about changes in workplaces and work practices across South Asia.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. And, uh, and it's, and it's this interest, as I say, wide interest, it, it comes through in all the different chapters of the book, because of course you, as we'll get to in the final chapter, you do start to speak to, speak to activist movement as well. So let's turn to the book itself. I mean, the book is, uh, it's about a special economic zone in Vishakhapatnam in and Andhra Pradesh. Um, but before we discuss the zone and the factory and the, and the people who are working and, and managing the factory, I was wondering if, Just so to to frame the book, as you do in the introduction, you're making an argument about what you call the economy of anticipation. So I was wondering, what is is the economy of anticipation and how does this special economic zone fit into this?
0: For me, what I mean by the economy of anticipation is something that sounds straightforward and commonsensical to everyone who's writing in south asian studies or in social anthropology and who are concerned with both modernity and also the expectations of modernity james Ferguson's classic phrase and it's about the the presence of the future uh hopes dreams of the future uh an anticipated future in the everyday lives of people uh, across the world and the ways in which those futures come to be present in the everyday lives of the here and now but i in this book, try to expand some of that previous work and stand on the shoulders of previous giants and think a bit more about the ways in which how we know about the future, how we predict or try and plan the future, come into contact with or are shaped by a kind of future-oriented imaginary, the different kinds of ways in which futures in popular discourse or in People's vernacular dreams come to be expressed, and also the ways in which some of those different futures really get carried on the skin, lived in, and inhabited, and in ways that shape people's kind of physical, kind of corporeal way of being in the world. And so, I try to bring together those ways of knowing, the ways of imagining, and the ways of, I suppose. Um, kind of the lived sensation of the future, bring those together in a way that could account for actually how capitalism works, how it's possible that spaces of work and labour can actually operate successfully, how it's possible that factory managers in a small or large South Indian city can actually get people to work every day, eight or nine hours a day, six days a week, Or, how it's possible that people in small villages uh, across India could be persuaded to give up land that they or their families have inhabited for a couple of generations in order to be part of some bigger industrial development project. And so, for me, those kind of the economy of anticipation was a way of actually trying to give a kind of a kind of a real weight to explaining how it is that those kinds of futures actually make the present. How it is that the contemporary economy is actually built and driven and kind of, um, um, I suppose, captured by all of those
1: different futures. <laughs> and. That's, that's, a, that's a wonderful summary of the of the first 20 pages or so. And I was wondering, could you tell us then a little bit, just, just a little bit of background about this particular special economic zone and, and Vishakhapatnam itself?
0: Yeah. So at the beginning of the 2000s, 2001 or 2002, this small city of a million people on the east coast of India became the centre of one of the first um, complaints to the international labour organisation about working conditions in these new zones, these new enclaves of globalisation in India. And this was a a formal bureaucratic legal process that was made by the Centre for Indian Trade Unions to the international labour organisation, which asserted that some new kind of slave labour regime was being given birth to in these new enclave spaces. And it set in motion something that continues to be ongoing uh, an investigative process by the International Labour Organisation in conjunction with uh, the Indian um, government to try and investigate a strike which took place, uh, a labour strike in a diamond factory in the Vishakhapatnam Special Economic Zone in 2002. And that case, that landmark case, really opened up to a whole new group of social activists outside of the Indian labor movement, an interest and kind of uncertainty about what was taking place in these new economic zones. And so that's what led me to Shikapatnam, because that case was about a a diamond factory which had been established in the uh, uh, Shikapatnam Special Economic Zone in 1997, Um, a factory that was part owned by a um, a, a Belgian company and part owned by a, a British company and had set up this incredible manufacturing facility to cut and polish diamonds that had been imported to India from all over the world, mostly Southern Africa, uh, Canada, Russia, and Australia, and which had become a, a fantastic flagship investment for the state government who celebrated it as exactly the kind of Uh, kind of foreign investment that they were looking to attract at that time employed one and a half thousand people um aged somewhere between 18 and 24 and that company and that space that zone the the story there was being repeated in myriad other places across india as state governments looked to attract particular kinds of investors to these new enclave spaces and so that was really the story I tried to follow and that drew me to, to Vietnam, this industrial city on the coast of Andhra Pradesh.
1: Mm-hmm. and and exactly as, and as you show in the second chapter, the special economic zones are, are are really important tools or, or spaces through which regional politicians and also consultants that they can reimagine and remake their states. so I was wondering what do you think it is about special economic zones that allows politicians to yeah to imagine new futures for their states and and how and how do they manage to do this?
0: So the special economic zone is a bounded territory. Basically, a a government can demarcate a a space, a piece of land, and say, within this space, the normal laws that govern our territory, our sovereign nation, won't apply, or there'll be exceptions to them. So in that sense, a kind of exceptional space, a space of exception. And what that also means is that it creates a kind of... uh, a blank slate. It creates the conditions under which politicians, uh, consultancy companies can give themselves free rein to imagining what uh, uh, an open economic space might look like in terms of writing from the bottom up, if you like, uh, laws and regulations that govern that space, uh, imagining in real practical terms, physical terms, what that space will look like, how it will be laid out, and what kinds of people will... Come and populate it, to work in it, to manage it, to construct it, to 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 govern it. And so, I think in some ways, it's the the fantasy of that pure bounded space, just like islands or um, kind of island communities have in the past, that gives rise to a particular kind of fantasy in the minds of politicians, um, international um, international financial institutions like the, the World Bank or the Asia Development Bank, who been instrumental in circulating models and ideas of their spaces over the last twenty twenty five years mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and this this particular special economic zone and, and indeed many of the special economic zones are very large, but this one seems particularly massive and, and it involves it involves the states basically taking a lot of a lot of land a lot of inhabited and, and farmed the land from people and then so unsurprisingly this involved a lot of negotiations, a lot of contestations. But as you show in the third chapter, it's not as straightforward as everybody being against the zone and, and the and the government coming in or the state coming in and taking it. But actually, there was a lot of difference between the different groups who wanted to give up the land who didn't. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about these different groups and how they negotiated with the state when it came to giving up their land.
0: Okay, so first let me just,
1: just kind of describe a
0: whole range. There's a whole spectrum of different spaces. Mm-hmm. Up until the middle of the 90s, the Indian government, the central government, built seven export processing zones across the country. These were often quite small spaces, you know, comparatively small, three, four 400, 500 acres. In the 2000s, changes in national legislation gave rise to a whole new Array of different spaces built under public-private partnership agreements with between state Indian state governments and um, um, lands uh, land developers, real estate developers, and so in a uh, on the east coast of Andhra Pradesh in the district of Ushikapatnam, you actually find a whole plethora of different spaces from. One of the oldest zones, first built in India back in the kind of mid nineties or early nineties, to some of these gigantic mega spaces that were planned during the two thousands. So, on the small side of the scale, something like three hundred acres, and then on the bigger side, these 10000 um, 10, acre spaces. And it's there where you find a incredible array of different. Communities of people who have either inhabited that land for a long period of time or have um, been resettled there as a result of previous attempts by state governments to redistribute land, perhaps during the 50s, 60s or 70s, as the post-colonial Indian government began to legislate and try to improve the conditions, particularly for scheduled tribes and scheduled castes. And what you found, which I think was really salient for me, and was kind of which was found in many other parts of these, or in many other places across India, around these large-scale industrial development projects, in Rishikapatnam you found many different communities of people who had historically struggled against each other to either kind of regain or kind of, um, access to land that had been lost, or were really engaged in battles with subordinate communities of people to try and get land from them in variously kind of legal or illegal ways. And on the edge of Shakapatnam you found communities who were the um, who were the ancestors of the historical historic landowners, the um, people who were in the kind of colonial era had been given rights to to manage and and, and control land for colonial governments to people who had effectively been peasant farmers in the early half of the 20th century and who had benefited from the, the first generation of land reforms and then the, the, kind of the, 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 kind of the third group of people um, cast communities of people who actually had been really struggling to, to get access to land and who hadn't really been able to benefit from either of those different kinds of land reform processes. And so we found a different communities of people some of whom are using the emergence of new industrial development projects to derive ever greater benefits, to find new ways of um, pushing people off land that they've been struggling to get access to for, for years, to get back land that they'd originally claimed um, and you found um, kind of smallholders who or landless peasants who were desperately scratching around trying to figure out a way of actually getting some legal title to lands that they 'd never been fully assured of mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and um I was, what's what 's interesting and what you also show in this chapter is even though a lot of the land was was notified for to become part of the special economic zone then because they couldn 't actually manage to 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 attract You know, one big investor, a lot of that land was then denotified, and suddenly then it was open for all different types of use apart from the special economic zone as well.
0: Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, part of what has given these spaces so much attention in contemporary India that state governments acquire land for the purposes of a large industrial development project like a special economic zone. And then over a number of years, they suddenly discover that maybe building that zone or building the infrastructure that had originally been planned was neither so attractive to investors as had originally been imagined, or perhaps was not really what had been imagined for that space uh, in the first place. And gradually the, the rationale for the for the project changes and the land itself becomes used for something different and that is what has made these zones real sites of criticism um, sites where we can identify across india um, government officials bureaucrats politicians and their families in the know and their friends who say yes to a project of one kind and are able a few years or months even down the line to get access to that land that's very low cost and redistribute it to their cronies or friends and use it for some other purpose so you you find cases of people buying up land at very low cost that the government has applied for big industrial projects and then selling it on at cheap rates to build uh, houses, um, kind of new property, estates, townships, etc etc. Now I think for me what's What's different in my argument and in my book from the the critiques that are often made in India is that I think sometimes we can over-egg over how instrumental those processes are. What you find in Andhra Pradesh are both projects that are conceived for one reason and then um, corrupts or kind of, you know, um, um, well, <laughs> effectively politicians who are hand-in-hand kind of, um, hand with friends and cronies in and the private sector use that land for something different. But you also find people who put all their kind of kind of who whose who's policies, whose desires for rural development are thrown into one particular project. And they discover over time that the originally conceived project was nowhere near as attractive as the one that they'd actually imagined. And the circumstances themselves change, forcing some redesign in the in the project. And you saw that particularly during the two thousands as um, different Indian states competed against each other and some parts of the country just proved much more attractive to foreign investment than others. So the area around Mumbai, for example, was much more attractive than the area around Chhukupupan in Bangladesh and some of the large projects that were imagined to be very successful there at one period of time later on proved completely unattractive to investors at all, forcing the state government to, and, and the kind of group of investors who put money into it to rethink what that was going to be used for.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just sticking on land one minute before we, we turn to the you know, the lives of people inside the the special economic zone itself. I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the resettlement colonies that people who who had their land taken um, for the special economic zone. A little bit about how they were yeah, how they were made and what li and what lives were like there. Because it's quite interesting because you got a you got a very you got quite a long sweep. You knew that area quite well. <laughs>
0: I think. Let's, let's be clear: there are lots of cases across India where the plan for a special economic zone and the subsequent process of displacement and forced resettlement, as the government compels people to move away from their land at whatever price they're able to eventually settle on, it is immensely disruptive and proves completely disadvantageous for, for many people who force who find themselves forced into. Um, either kind of, um, kind of new kinds of unemployment or underemployment or find themselves employed as incredibly um, kind of in, in vulnerable ways or sort of newly employed in particularly vulnerable ways in the global economy. But I think there is another side to that story, which is that that process of resettlement and displacement affects different people in different ways and people in particular kind of social, economic, political context and historical context in different ways. And across South India, I think you can find communities who at some point see those processes of rupture as potentially Potentially offering some kind of shift in their own or in their own relationships with other castes. And I think you see that particularly for in coastal Andhra Pradesh, but I think the literature and other studies across South India shows that for for Dalit communities across the across that part of India, you find people who see in that moment of rupture some kind of emancipatory potential as the historic sedimented relationships with higher castes with um, farming communities who have. Look down on them socially, who have um, enjoyed uh, a history of hierarchical relationships somehow which are kind of which are really kind of spatially locked locked in space, see those being reshaped or reconfigured, and in the resettlement colonies around the under Pradesh special economic zone outside of Kappatnam, I think that's one location where you certainly saw that where. Uh, Dalit communities, Madhigars uh, um, um, uh, and Malas, found themselves able to imagine a new kind of relationship to the Kapu and Velema communities who had um, enjoyed a kind of, um, a, a kind of uh, uh, enjoyed kind of power over them in, in many different ways, both in terms of their access to. To land to, to the kind of the most fertile, the least rocky land, but who'd also been able to um, uh, game the system of uh, a whole series of um, redistributive processes, enabled in order to end up better off. And so, for many people who resettled in a purpose-built, purpose-planned resettlement colony outside of this new zone, um, people moved there jumbled together. There was uh, caste communities who lived in segregated hamlets and, and villages were now thrown together, living on opposite sides of the streets or um, kind, of a, kind of next door from each other and raised that higher castes or kind of people who saw themselves as um, kind of in a kind of position of higher status, suddenly found incredibly imperiled by and were both unhappy and um, that felt themselves insecure or sullied by that new proximity. And direct communities, and the communities particularly of, of young men who found that experience of proximity incredibly emancipating. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Thanks for that. So let's let's move from outside to, to inside the special economic zone itself. And you, you worked for a year um, in a diamond factory. I, sp- I suppose it's the same diamond factory that you mentioned before. Or did yeah. You- yeah, same, no, one. same one. Same one, and and it's it's a really nice chapter because you you get to we get to meet George, um, this British manager who's come over to uh, to save the factory or, or to or to modernise the factory, take it to the future, and um, he seems to take to you. He seems to really it seems like a wonderful sort of uh field work moment yeah i guess i imagine you were quite worried that you know your approach to manager. he may say yes he may say no but he seemed to be really happy to have you there in the factory so i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the factory and also then how it's managed how george manages and how the other managers manage and how, and how this works in relation to the future
0: so in mm-hmm. 2004 i spent Six months in Shikapatnam learning to learning Telugu and trying to find my way around the city, but with an eye on this factory, which had, as I said at the beginning, been the basis for a test case against the uh, International Labour Organisation. And after. <laughs> Um, finding my way around the city and figuring out some kind of formal affiliations to the uh, local state university, I finally plucked up the courage to turn up one day at the at the zone and just um, make a, a formal arrangement for an interview with um, with the, the the management of this World War Dynamics factory. And by complete luck, I found myself there a couple of weeks after this new manager from the UK had been um had been recruited and um, had turned up to transform this factory into a, a new kind of model factory of the future and because he had not been in india for very long and it was his first time there and perhaps because he saw an opportunity to demonstrate his knowledge and skill and wisdom to a young kind of rippersnapper of a student from the UK um, he opened the doors of this factory to me and for that I'm obviously very grateful to him and that was uh, something that he took a reasonable amount of risk in doing and it opened up that space for me but it was a very complicated relationship I think both of us were in some ways perhaps wary of each other over that time I think he never made any demands on me he never asked me to uh show him or tell him anything particularly about the factory in some respects he had very little respect for me he didn't think there was anything i could tell him about that place that he didn't already know for himself and it was often a battle of wits as he'd like to tell me all the different things about the place that that he knew that i didn't but i was given the opportunity uh, i I asked if i could be put onto the factory floor in one of the departments and learn to um (laughs) cut and polish diamonds in the same way that any new apprentice would and so i began in uh, I think early 2005, a, um, a kind of an apprenticeship, if you like, on the floor of the preparation departments, where rough diamonds were put onto the factory floor, um, where they had their you know these tiny tiny little diamonds that would appear in this factory looking like salt crystals, and in this particular di- particular department, they'd be have their edges um, rubbed off. So they'd be, their circumference would be round and smooth, and they gradually have these facets uh, ground into their top until they began to take this rudimentary diamond shape. And I began to go there every, every day, six days a week, joining the factory A shift, getting up at five o'clock to leave my house to be on time for the six o'clock start, and leaving at uh, two o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> go home. Um, completely exhausted and then try and write up some, some notes from that day and over the course of several months I, I learned how to complete a number of tasks in that particular department starting in this one section the cornering section which was my kind of entry point to the factory where these corners were kind of cut off these kind of ground off these rough diamonds and and then moved from there into a a rooting section which gives them their the different facets and uh, a sorting section which sorts diamonds into different grades and, and qualities and really kind of immersed myself in the everyday life of the shift and the, the social life of people on it uh, people who i got to know in some cases really well outside of the factory as well um but yeah so this this man who i call george in the book uh, was both a you know, um, my my gateway and somebody who over the course of that year I had to make sure I didn't necessarily upset and um, but uh, um, and whom I'm not in contact with anymore. But uh, I no longer know how he feels about being. You know, I I think I do justice to his his attempt and my final words from him when I left that factory and we said goodbye were to tell it as it is and that's what I try to do.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I think you do, and I, I, you 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 put the words in his mouth. I mean, very often he has he has a wonderful uh, he has a wonderful way of of his own unique way of management speak, I suppose. And there's lots of nice nice quotes from him in there.
0: He had uh, we sat down many times and did uh, recorded interviews. I had this p- pretty much kind of incredible access to to the factory's management, with all of whom I recorded several um, several interviews, and the transcripts of which I've been able to use. In some cases, verbatim, and then on the factory floor itself, this process of being a kind of participant, observer, kind of being part of the the everyday life of, of the workplace, and then trying to figure out how to represent and record that afterwards.
1: Mm-hmm. So this um this management that the, this new type of management that George was 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 trying to bring in, I mean in the end we, we find out at the end of the chapter it ended in failure and he was he was sent sent back to the UK. Um, but he was he was very anxious of basically left wing organisations, the the communist trade union and so on, organising inside the factory and and you can and he was very conscious of possible future agitations i suppose um in the hiring process and also in the way how he how he organized the work within the factory i was wondering can you tell us a little bit about that
0: yeah what was really really amazing for me was just how much power labor really has in these spaces we often think of management in the global sweatshop as being top down as being this structure of Um, kind of control and discipline that's imposed on the workplace. But what's really interesting is that those structures of control and discipline are incredibly responsive to anxieties and fears of worker unrest. And so actually, if you look at them closely, what you see are the kind of management decisions and strategies that attempt to respond in advance or anticipate the possibility of of workers gaining more control. And actually, I think it's that fear or anxiety of of losing control over these spaces, which really drive a whole set of management decisions, um, plans and strategies for for controlling and and organising the workplace. And I think that's something that we often kind of play down or underestimate. But for me, there was something quite fragile about the managerial assertions and they about their capacities to transform these, these spaces so this is a workplace which um you know until the the end of the 90s diamond manufacturing was organized in kind of in a, in a very kind of uh similar way around the world you'd have small clusters of people who were trained to cut and polish a diamond from beginning to end and then at the end of the last century you began to find introduced into the diamond industry a whole new set of strategies for organizing the workplace that borrowed from the organization of workplaces and industries and other kinds of sectors, everything from glass and and kind of vehicle manufacturing to 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 kind of clothing and um, and kind of microelectronics, so that the assembly line became a kind of predominant model for organizing diamond manufacturing. People were organized into effectively long lines and diamonds kind of were passed from one group of people to the next so that no one in particular would know how to cut and polish a diamond from beginning to end but would have a, a kind of uniquely specialized understanding of one part of that process and that's what had been kind of taking place in this factory and what George began to do was to up the ante a little bit and Add to that dynamic, to that kind of new model of assembly line diamond manufacturing, a whole new layer of management expertise and strategy, which was about fostering new kinds of feelings amongst the, the workers, new kinds of feelings of, of a kind of affection and affinity to their company, um, to try to instill new kinds of competition between different parts of the factory in order to drive up productivity, make work the, the place work more efficiently and effective, and also to,
1: to ratchet up profits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's great, and then the the next chapter is is when you really are deep deep. I said the deepest ethnography, maybe it's all it's all deep ethnography. But this is when you really you learn a lot about the 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 lives of the of the factory workers who who you knew very well, and and um and I, and I imagine were extremely close to as well. It certainly certainly reads like that. And you explore, I suppose, the aspirations on amongst the lives of 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 the people who come to work here. You start with this wonderful anecdote when when actually the workers were called into the to one manager's office and, and asked to give their future hopes or aspirations and and it turned into a big joke on the factory floor. And but this this chaps is really nice, I like it because there's especially because you learn so much about three three particular men and and I and I presume they're representative of, of many other people as well. The aspiration and this and this sort of Dreams of 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 future success are, are such a strong, amazingly strong, motivating force in their lives. So, I was wondering, can you could you expand a bit on this? Can you tell us a little bit about your your fellow um, your fellow workers? I think this
0: chapter was 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 really driven by my experience in this on this factory floor. I arrived in this factory having spent time writing about and working with trade unions in south asia but also working with the international labor organization really expecting to write a a kind of um expose of the global sweatshop and you know there's much kind of evidence i you know it would have been in some respects a kind of straight you know it's an easy place to write a straightforwardly journalistic account of um of kind of low low pay and hard work and the kind of implications of that, but what was really striking for me in this place was that well two things really one is that although this is a place in which people have on two occasions at least two occasions in the last ten years stopped work and gone on strike uh, have organized themselves collectively in this workplace to try and um, try and agitate for better working conditions. The rest of the time, everyone goes to work. Um, Everyone consents to the terms and conditions of work as they stand. And, And for me, what's really important is to try and figure out not just how those extraordinary moments are organized, not just to pay attention to those moments when people put down their tools and refuse to work, but also to pay attention to those other mundane moments when people actually don't put down their tools, but actually go to work and stay at work for eight or nine hours and go back again and again and again, day after day six days a week. And then um, for the next week and the next week after that. And the second part of my surprise, if you like it working myself inside this place was just how kind of um, social it was. It was in many ways a bit like a classroom at times. There were kind of the, the kind of personal relationships between people on the on the factory floor, the kind of the jokes and banter that people used to enliven their days, the kinds of relationships that people carried into this place from the outside. that, that sometimes people, you know, 18, 19 year olds uh, who had never had the opportunity or were never part of a, 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 a class who would have had the opportunity to go to a college, talked about it as a, as a, as a college place, a, a diamond college or a work college, a place where they could enjoy proximity to people. They might not meet outside the workplace um, proximity to members of the other sex or to members of other castes. Um, and so those two things really kind of transformed the way I began to think about this. And Part of that led me to try and explore the other kinds of things that people carry into this workspace, the, as you kind of, and I've used that word, aspiration, but the the kind of aspirations that people carry. Now, that word has come, I think, to have quite a lot of baggage. You know, the kind of aspirational economy is something that gets celebrated and championed by people who want to kind of laud the, the, the possibility and potential for India's future transformation. Well, obviously, aspiration comes with a whole host of anxieties and uh, ambiguities and uncertainties and disappointments as people fail to to realise the kind of aspirations that they project onto their own futures or that the kinds of um, futures that their, their parents project onto them. And the, the, the workplace, workplaces like these, are places in which all those different things come to play out and the story i wanted to really focus on was was driven by an attempt to understand how these places work so as i said in the beginning this economy of anticipation economy of uh, uh, anticipation yeah uh, you know what it what it is about the the quality of people's aspirations that make this workplace tick that make it possible for people to Custom polished diamonds, without putting down their tools, make it possible for managers to reorganize spaces in more effective and efficient ways. What is it about the quality of people's aspirations that that makes that possible, and also makes people, I suppose, in some ways, complicit in the or in the in the organization of those spaces and makes their labor cons- consensual rather than just coerced. Okay. And it was that is that. Interest in the, the kind of the power of anticipation that's that really um, kind of drives this
1: chapter and, and what I try and do there. Mm-hmm. and i just would flag this up for the for the listeners this i mean i think it's the the most brilliantly written chapter in the book the whole book's very nicely written it just reads so well I, in a way that i suppose we can't describe because it's it's very much a, a literary uh, um, written, beautifully literally constructed chapter so i really would strongly recommend strongly recommend the book anyway but especially for the for the way these different elements come through in the come through in the writing but let's let's turn to the penultimate chapter or the, the the final substantive chapter of the book when you start to Explore the the struggles against special economic zones. This was also part of your research, not just inside the factory, but you you talk about how you were part of a part of the the audit which was going on, and these fact or not a fact finding mission that's different than an audit, but you were part of this. Um, and you were you were present often at these meetings amongst amongst um, activists um, campaigning <clears> against them. And I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about what motivates these campaigns and how successful or not were they in in opposing SEZs?
0: Okay, so the the time I spent on the the floor of this factory in in um, in, in during two thousand five. I left and wrote up this, this PhD at the University of Sussex in the UK. And my PhD work had really been focused on, on questions of labour. But at the time I was kind of beginning to, to finish that PhD and the, the kind of conflicts around land really exploded. Across India, um, you know, 10, 20, 30 different locations, 40, 50, saw these conflicts and struggles over, over the kind of forced, often forced acquisition of land for um, for these large-scale industrial infrastructure projects. And that gave rise to or focused the attention of social and political activists on the, the Indian left, um, often outside of formal kind of, uh, kind of left-wing political parties like the, the Communist Party, people who aligned to uh, a whole range of social movements and grass grassroots movements, who um, frequently come together under the umbrella of the Um, Kind of non-aligned movements, or the whole whole range of other kind of uh, of titles and names, but um, who had begun to coalesce around the kind of an attempt to push back legislation around special economic zones in India. (laughs) These these zones really became a focus point for struggles over. Neoliberalism and neoliberal globalization in India, struggles against the, the state's kind of um, drive to force upon different communities, people and populations, market-oriented development policies. And, and the zone became, the, the special economic zone became a kind of... Um, a kind of came to epitomise the kinds of projects and politics of, of the governments and um, and their relationship to private sector um, kind of actors. And so, in two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, you saw this coming together in a um, in a particular kind of anti special economic zone movement, which attempted to basically audit the impact of zones across the country and document the. Impact of these uh, these projects, both on people working inside them, and also people who've been uh, dispossessed of, of their land as a result of them. But I also wanted to, so I was doing kind of, you know, and I and I was uh, in 2009. I was um, for, for a large portion of that year in in Andhra Pradesh and became involved in um, the the audit process there, um, helping to just discuss with a whole range of different. Um, grassroots campaigners and social activists discuss how the audit process would go forward and um, how it would be kind of best organised and also documented that process as as an anthropologist and, um, and write about it in this chapter. But what became apparent to me during that process was that the campaigners and activists who were part of that, that movement were making real tactical decisions about how those zones should be represented. And... Their decisions were made in order to leverage the greatest kind of impact of their of their own campaigns of the audit process um, to attract the most attention in the media to try and force the results which they were um, kind of uh, focused on, which was a repeal of the uh, the SEZ Act, the Special Economic Zone Act of two thousand five and its subsequent amendments. And what that also meant was that some of the kind of complex lives of people who worked inside these spaces or the social politics of people who were pushed off land for these zones i felt began to be um kind of fall to the wayside a little bit and a particular kind of story of these spaces began to kind of come to the surface and while i was in many ways incredibly supportive of that of that kind of political struggle i also wanted to try and find a way of writing this chapter to try and explore the ways in which Activists, just like uh, workers, just like managers, just like the dispossessed or the displaced and just like politicians, also projected onto these zones uh, a kind of anticipated future, kind of particular ideas of, um, um, kind of hopes, aspirations, dreams about what kind of politics they could catalyze, what kind of new political movements they could give birth to and give rise to, and what kind of dystopian futures um, they also were were breeding, and so I tried to describe some of that in this book, and just uh, tried to kind of do justice to some of those different kinds of uh, politics. But at the same time, I also wanted to show how varied the politics around these zones are. The social and political activists on the on the left are not the only kinds of people involved in political struggles around these spaces as i described elsewhere in the book you also have the politics of high or middle income caste communities who try and use the coming of a zone to either kind of re-establish and reassert their own power over land and space and territory but so on the ed- uh, inside these spaces you also have labor movements which are not always as kind of Entirely progressive as they they always appear, and I think that if we tease open some of the politics of labour and organised um, trade union movements, we also see attempts to um, to protect employment opportunities for men over women, and you certainly see some of those gendered politics of labour playing out in the, the ways in which um, the kind of campaigns against. Um, particular kinds of um, kind of exploitation against women in the workplaces were flagged or signalled or articulated, and the ways in which um, men and male workers were kind of uh, are kind of represented as the the only kinds of person able to really hold and carry the the burden of work inside these new kinds of spaces. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for that. I mean. We've. And I always have this problem. We have, we sort of shot through through what is a very rich and, and, and detailed ethnography in like forty minutes or so. So I was wondering if there's anything that I've skipped over with my questions that you'd like to flag up for the for the listeners.
0: Just to say, I suppose that, um, that this book was intended as a book about a particular kind of industrial infrastructure project in contemporary India. It's a book about a very particular part of india and the experiences of people there but it's also and i also wrote it in an attempt to open up a vocabulary for people writing about large-scale industrial infrastructure projects elsewhere in india and in other parts of the world too. Um, to flag and to open up a kind of methodological approach to really make a claim for ethnography as an as a way of writing that also intervenes in the world, it's not just. I'm not content to allow, or to to just kind of step back and allow other genres, the genres of kind of dystopian futures, so kind of so kind of widely used in in bodies of activists' propaganda and and kind of proper propaganda in, in the sense of kind of tactical, strategic writing, but also the genres of uh, of, of of journalism that's. Often make particular claims to to kind of represent and write about these spaces, and for me, what's what's really powerful about ethnography as a as a literary genre, as well as a, a kind of um, a social science or kind of as, a, as a kind of anthropological methodology, is its capacity to tell stories about places, people, in in to, to 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 those who aren't necessarily able to kind of to hear them at first hand, but also to try and to kind of complicate some of the the narratives that that saturate our contemporary worlds, and that they're not just the 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 narratives that champion a particular politics or particular market future, but also the counter narratives, the narratives that try and contest them and oppose them.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, hello, hello, yeah. Oh, sorry, the line went a bit bad. And I just also like, I suppose, to to reiterate. Your 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 point to the listeners that this is a really um it's an easy read. It's not a complicated read. You don't need a PhD in anthropology to to read this at all. It's it's accessible. It's accessible for people not just involved in in you know postgraduate education but anyone could sort of pick this up and get engaged in the arguments it's not this sort of heavy jargon filled text so it really does it really is a book that hopefully will be will be widely read as well and it's already straight out in in paperback as well we don't have to wait wait years down the line for uh, for that which is also great so we've taken up a lot of your time and so i'd just like to ask what's the traditional last question on the podcast is what future or current projects are you working on now
0: well, um, so I, for the last um, three years, I suppose since um, you know I've been kind of finishing this book project off, and uh, in some ways drawing a line under some of my work in Shikapatnam and around these uh, kind of industrial infrastructure projects, and since then I've been focusing on a different kind of project that has been reshaping contemporary India, that also has um, kind of is, is reshaping. Uh, the futures of, of development and, and capitalism and they're the kind of futures that get built into new technologies that are being built and designed for very very poor people living on less than two dollars a day people who don't have access to electricity the kind of um, so I've been focusing for the last uh, couple of years on um, solar powered um, energy systems, technologies, particularly lighting systems that's are technologies that are seen as kind of transformative and emancipated, uh, emancipatory, and are being kind of built and sold to people across India today, with uh, with a kind of hope and uh, kind of um, a set of hopes and visions attached to them about how they might transform people's lives. And the book I'm writing writing right now is um, is, is is a book that follows some of these. Kind of solar pads, lanterns and lights across India from places where they're um, um, kind of designed and built and manufactured to places where they're sold and places where they're bought and used to kind of explore how they make particular claims about what certain kinds of technology can do, what
1: poor people want, and what um, markets can achieve in the future. Wonderful. Sounds, sounds brilliant. Well, we look forward to that, um, I guess, a couple of years down the line when that, when that comes out. That sounds great. So, yeah, nothing left to do apart from to thank you very much for your book and thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much,
0: Ian. Thanks a lot.
1: Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to New Books in South Asian Studies. I've been your host, Ian Cook. Today we've been talking about Dream Zones by Jamie Cross, published by Pluto Press. It's a great book, and I strongly recommend you check it out. Thanks again for listening, and hopefully you'll tune in again next time. ta